0: Welcome to episode 20 of Tall Poppy. Get ready for a mind-expanding conversation about value. If you thought you had a wide-reaching concept of this thing we call value, you may just have your mind blown. Not to build it up too much, but I always have great conversations with Matt, and this was no exception. I really appreciate that he thinks big, conceptually, grand vision, and can bring it back to a human level to understand big ideas in a practical sense. He's also the one that got me onto human-centered design. He was the first person that I'd heard actually speak the words, which led me to explore what human-centered design and design thinking was all about. And I learned a lot from attending Huddle Academy, and I did a couple of other courses as well. And it helped me to name what I was doing in leadership as human-centric. More on that another time, but Matt, he's a values creation specialist, and he believes that our future is here to be created if we can only begin to ignore what we care about and care about what we ignore. As I said, he's a big thinker, and this is the sort of conversation that gets me excited about what the future holds, when we can have a new view of value creation and different types of capital. It paves the way for both the public and private sector to take a different approach. Have a listen. So we're here in the Huddle Studios and we're here with Matt Karowski. Hello. And uh, we're going to have a bit of meeting of Top Poppy and Huddle today, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm quite excited about. So um, first of all, Matt, can you just say a little bit about what Huddle is?
1: Yes, Tathra, I can. And it's exciting to be here. Um, so Huddle is uh, a strategic design agency, global now. We have offices in... Melbourne, Sydney and Amsterdam and uh, what we focus on is primarily a base of human-centered design and we bring the idea of human-centered design to large organizations, be they corporate or government, uh, with the intention of helping create more holistic value through relationships that people have, communities helping other communities thrive is really kind of like the underpinning message for us. That's a really, really succinct answer.
0: Yeah, I, I appreciate that succinctness. And I'm going to um, ask you to say what human-centered design is. And I'm also just going to say that you're the person that I heard about human-centered design from back in the day. And we'll come to that in a moment. Is not my fault? Yeah, it is all your fault. <laughs> so can you say what human-centered design is?
1: Sure. Um, I think the trick with human-centered design is that almost every designer has a different interpretation of it. Uh, although if it was a big Venn diagram, there'd be a big spot in the middle that I think most people would agree on. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that. Right. Uh, but to me, human centered design sort of it can be packed apart, more well, pulled apart pretty pretty easily around like the whole idea of what is human centered and what is design. You know, that's probably the easiest approach that you can uh, that you can take to human centered design. And for human centered, obviously, um, we're talking about. A position where we're prioritizing the needs, goals, wishes, motivations and values of humans over organizational process, over profitable outcomes necessarily, Uh, although profitable outcomes in any kind of design process are obviously very desirable. We certainly don't look at those as the the only end point Mm -hmm. in any kind of uh, work that we do. So that human-centered thing is who are all the different people and how is it that we can create products, services in a business context uh, that helps all those different people thrive or succeed in ways that are important to them that's the human centered part and then the design part i think is a you know the the mindset of uh, of creative exploration, um, of intentional creation is a nice uh, definition of design that I've heard, the uh, the act of intentional creation where we're deliberately designing things, um, either intangible or tangible things like, you know, whether it's a phone or whether it's a, uh, an experience, you know, uh, when you're talking to a bank or to your government or to your local counsellor, that's intentionally crafted to make it meaningful for, for the humans in that in that space. So
0: customer experience.
1: Customer experience is definitely a part of human-centered design. Mm-hmm. Um, customer experience has a sort of like a, a, a preponderance or a bias towards the customer as the center of any kind of transaction. Mm-hmm. However, in a human-centered design approach, we challenge that to sort of think, well, what about your staff? What about your other stakeholders in your ecosystem? But even more broadly and in the most expansive senses, what about the sustainability of humankind through the decisions that you're making, You know, large-scale manufacturing and demand and all that sort of stuff? Uh, almost unarguably uh contribute to resource depletion and all that sort of stuff on a global scale and we try and um walk with our partners um to be able to explore what the impacts of decisions at an organizational level actually have upon systems for human thriving into the future does that make sense
0: yeah absolutely i love it and so um let's take a step back and uh talk about where when we first met and sort of well for me it was an amazing conversation that just had me quite excited about you know learning more and and yes set me on a path to explore human-centered design which was quite a focus for me for for a while which is how I became a bit of a fan of Huddle as well yeah so yeah tell me what you remember from that
1: well I mean it was a long time ago and I think there was alcohol involved
0: uh, or, not initially.
1: No, there wasn't. We, yeah. were, we were well behaved.
0: Uh, to start with. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so it was at the um, one of the KPI events, the Keepers that's of the right. That's Yes, yeah, so yeah. I remember we were right on that yeah.
1: balcony up at MCEC. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, that was a fun event, I mm. think. Um, what do I remember from it? I remember you being like really passionate and really excited and really interested and exu- I think I've described you as exuberant before, uh, and having, you know, great gravitas. And I think that that was something that, that definitely shone through in you then and, and carries through until today and beyond. Um, and you've only been growing in those sorts of ways. So that's, that's where we met was talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah. How do you become a key person of influence and, mm-hmm. and, and, and how do you carry yourself in, in the world, um, you know, as a, as a professional and a human and, um, and what does that mean and mm. how do you brand that, and, yeah. you know, and, um, and grow and thrive? In yeah own, and we've we've,
0: we've had um, a range of different conversations about various different topics and there there are times when I feel like my head explodes and sometimes I'm like I'm not sure I'm smart enough to have these conversations but <laughs> but <sense>. but, <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's just been a uh, a really um fascinating experience for me to really be um sort of pulled in a particular direction in in a supposed intellectual space but also it doesn't feel like a heady intellectual space it feels well, human-centered and, and kind of whole, I suppose. Yeah,
1: that's well, um, wonderful.
0: Hmm. Yeah, so um, let's um, explore a little bit about what Huddle's work looks like. So we've got the sort of theoretical, uh, you know, human-centered design orientation of it, but what does that actually look like when you're working with clients?
1: You mean kind of like a day-to-day level or an outcome? Level
0: yeah. Well, what kind like of that? projects and clients are you working with?
1: Okay, cool. Um, that's that's an easy one. So typically, we'll work uh, with large organisations. Our focus is typically on the financial sector at the moment, like around insurance, banking, all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, we work with um, with global banks, with uh, Australian banks, etc., to help them. Um, you know, rethink their internal and external kinds of uh, human-related issues, processes and all that sort of thing. Um, So that's one thing is the finance sector is a very, very uh, big part of, uh, of our focus And on top of that, as well as federal and state government, where we'll be looking, for example, we've done work with uh, Department of Education and Training, which is ongoing, uh, Department of Premier and Cabinet here in Victoria, um, Service New South Wales, up in New South Wales, obviously. Um, And we work with these guys uh, to have that whole citizen government relationship, explore that a lot more meaningfully. How is it that government can be more in service of the citizens of the world? Um, Well, you know, within their remit, I think it's only fair to say, Um, to be able to sort of uh, have a government that's truly in service of people is really how we're helping them there. Uh, Again, that's really broad brushstrokes.
0: So it seems to me as though human-centred design is something that is becoming kind of in vogue and and people are starting to get a bit of a sense of it, but people may not really understand what it is and I'm wondering about the receptivity in the, in the business community around the work that you do and, and how, um, how that translates into being able to you know, attract clients or an awareness of what it is that you're doing.
1: What we talk about a lot is uh, value and impact. Right. Uh, they're the kind of like the two big things we talk about. Value in terms of marketplace, you know, uh, value in terms of how it is that um, government services and corporate services are being disrupted by, you know, more savvy players, you could argue, or faster moving players, whatever it is, uh, in that space so around value. That's where we look. Broadly, uh, I'm being pretty abstract at the moment, and we'll probably drip, drill down into these a little bit more specifically. But also on the impact side as well. So talking about disconnection from populations, how is it that uh, how is it that large organisations, be they government or corporate, uh, can can become more connected to the needs of their constitu- constituencies um, and uh, and create more meaningful services and and you know and relationships over time. So we look at every kind of problem space, if you want to call them that, that our uh, that our Clients and partners come to us with uh, as an opportunity to understand what value has been created or destroyed in those relationships, um, and what kind of impact the organisation is actually ultimately trying to achieve, and assess whether or not and how uh, what they're doing is actually aligned towards that impact, which is kind of like that impact beyond profit, right? What do you What do you do um, in the world that makes its mark uh, beyond Beyond profit, that Larry Fink, Warren Buffett type uh, you know approach. What do you do? apart from make money, you mm-hmm. know, and, and let's talk about that for a while. That's, that's kind of the space we enjoy playing in.
0: So I want to get into the values component in a moment, but I'm interested to hear a bit more about what are some of the problems that people come to you with?
1: Well, it's a, it's a, it's a really broad range. I think, I think the thing about the world today, here we go. I'm going to start on the world today. Excellent. Bring uh, it on. The, the thing about the world today is that problems can't be boxed anymore. You know, uh, humankind has a, a direct relationship with the planet. You know, we, we know uh, incontrovertibly that a heat island effect, for example, um, here in Melbourne means that we have hotter, drier days during the week and rainier days around Melbourne during the weekend because of a heat island effect which is you know um hvac or you know uh, high volume air conditioning systems on uh, on the tops of these buildings and stuff like that with all the traffic and everything that creates a a heat bubble uh which pushes clouds away and changes the nature of you know like pressure um in the sky and all sort of things so you know um when that cools down over the weekend, it gets rainier. Typically, that's that's one sort of simple example. And you've got the more systemic changes around, you know, climate change, you know, um, uh, rising sea levels, you know, uh, deforestation, contributing to all these sorts of things. So we've got a direct one-to-one relationship with the planet now, uh, and the decisions that we make directly impact the decisions for our future and our ch- and our children's future and all that sort of thing as well. Because of because of this direct one-to-one relationship how it was that we've done business and made decisions as people, uh, as individuals and as collectives in the past is no longer capable of handling the levels of complexity uh, around how our immediate needs are actually destroying our future, how we're eating tomorrow to eat well today. You know, um, that's that's really the nature of it. So how it is that people come to us is typically by not knowing what the problem is to begin with. I just know things aren't working. For example, we'll uh, have people come to us with uh, with. Uh, projections that sort of say we know that car sales on decline uh, and we don't know what that means for us because we sell cars you know Um, we know that there's automated vehicles coming in and all that sort of stuff we don't know what to do next. Mm. You know?
0: I think that's what I was sort of hitting on earlier, in that it's it's the sort of this nebulous, amorphous kind of space. And so, how do you uh, you know name what it is that people are struggling with? So, and I think the fact that people can come to you and say we don't really know what the problem is, or maybe that's the subtext, mm. and be able to say you know this is what we're dealing with, help.
1: Yeah. And uh, you know that that openness and that uncertainty is um, is almost sort of de rigueur in when it comes to our clients and partners. It's kind of like that genuine. I don't know what the hell's going on, uh, but this is the problem that we're facing, and we need to do things differently uh, mm. in order to in order to figure out what's going on. And you know, there's one guarantee that uh, well, there's many guarantees, I suppose, that come out of working with Huddle. But uh, one of the big ones is that you won't get uh, anything that. That you've done before um, in terms of the, uh, the approach we use to our problem solving or the outcomes that we, we help you provide um, and there's a whole bunch of reasons for that you know through our collaboration methods through the fact that we're hugely multidisciplinary you know we don't just have business analysts looking to give you a, sorry McKinsey but a McKinsey like or Deloitte like approach to cost cutting and everything like that we look at how it is that you can create value through new forms of revenue rather than just through cost cutting you know so top line versus bottom line conversations uh, end up being something that we do on a day to day basis and, um, and leveraging what value that um, that people have within a system that they're ignoring uh, is really a big one so we're surrounded by so much value and so much so, so many uh, ways that people communicate with each other and businesses only really measure two or three you know around revenue and around time and around what we use in order to get the job done but when it comes to the relevance part you know when it comes to things like uh, you know the, the the very difficult to grasp trust, you know, and longitudinal relationships with customers and uh, and meaningful relationships and stuff. It's not easy to measure through NPS or KPIs or any of that sort of stuff. So we help them look at problems from that perspective and say, what are you missing already? What's already out there? I don't know if that answers your question.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. And and so I'm keen to go into the value stuff and I suspect that we might get a little bit theoretical here and that's completely okay. Mm. Um, I
1: do have some concrete examples these days though. So. Excellent. Okay, <laughs> so,
0: so can we talk about... Um, is it snowflake
1: yeah the snowflake yeah
0: Yeah. um and and what that's about and how values plays into
1: that sure um okay so for the listener yes it is it is a little theoretical but it's uh, a it's a it's an interesting ride to go on what uh we've done a whole bunch of research at at huddle labs right which is a a part of huddle and uh, over the last couple of years we've been looking at all the different ways that humans exchange value. Like what we're talking about there, we we're talking about, you know, people exchange you know fee for service is a, is a great one. You know, it's like I pay mm-hmm. I pay Optus money every month and they give me, you know, uh, a phone contract which allows me access to the internet. And that's, you know, that, that's one sort of simple way of thinking about things. And often that's the way that businesses track success is through how many sales we've got, how many customers we'll we retain uh, and how much money we make from that thing there and how do we make it stickier. It's kind of like one sort of example of how retail works. Yeah. Um, and so we understand that. But again, when it comes to all the other different types of value that's exchanged out there, whether it be something like a smile, whether it be something like trust, whether it be something like I'm inspired by you, you know, or I'm moved by something that happened in the world. How is it that you can begin to, you know, to go back to the human-centered design part of it? How is it that you can design for those experiences? How is it that you could design for the things that you can't measure is what we're interested in exploring? And not only that, but of course it needs to come with the measurable stuff as well. Um, so to that point, what we've done is we've created the snowflake, which is, you know, a representation of Huddle's logo, which is an eight-armed snowflake. Uh, and we've articulated conveniently enough um, in our research that there are actually eight kind of umbrellas uh, which humans use to exchange value under. Um, and, you know, uh, really briefly, uh, there are things like, yes, there's financial capital, which is exchanged. there's... Uh, there's that's the obvious one. The obvious one, yeah. And that's, you know, that's well-traveled. Most mm-hmm. people understand mm-hmm. that really, mm-hmm. really well. Um, of course,
0: there's much more to it than that. So it's, what are the other ones?
1: Yeah. So there's, um, there's well, there's infrastructural capital, mm-hmm. uh, which pays attention to processes as much as it does towards the plumbing uh, and your IT infrastructure and all that sort of stuff sits in that space. Okay. So that's kind of like the how you do what you do. sort of mm-hmm. sits in infrastructural capital. Um, and then there's temporal capital, which is probably the most fun one. And I'll give a, a shout-out to Eddie Harron, who's uh, uh excellent center for the Edge uh, – our resident futurist and temporal designer here at Huddle Labs. Also
0: known as Dr. Time.
1: Also known as Dr. Time, and you can find him on Twitter under that handle too. Um, Sorry. That's (laughs) all right. uh, He's
0: he's, going to be interviewed um, for – Tall Puppy, shortly. So Wonderful. To, yeah, yeah. Oh,
1: you're going to have a lot of fun with him. Yeah. Um, so temporal capital, and that's obviously, when we think about it, it's the ticking of the clock, right? So it's minutes um, and how they function within forms of exchange. But also uh, the other side of that, which going back to the ancient Greek, is a, is a concept called kairos, which is moments of time. Uh, which is like a sunset, or um, you know, when you, when you you're gazing into your cat, or, or you know, like I gaze into my cat's eyes, and I like have this deep moment of kind of like you're awesome kitty. Um, or I love <laughs> that. <laughs> it, and you know, you, you could be in that state for minutes or hours or whatever it is, and and you know, be in that true state of bliss or euphoria, and then it's
0: feeling like hours.
1: Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're so critical to the human experience, uh, but there is no measure for that. But you know, if we can in our work in our daily lives create opportunities for us to achieve those states more meaningfully then can you imagine how that reframes conversations around productivity mm, and can yeah. you imagine how the conversation about minutes becomes more about Well, did you get your kairos time in because that's going to help you work more efficiently so mm-hmm. to speak yeah uh, because you've had the opportunity to really really get in flow um so that's another one temporal capital mm-hmm. so that's that mm-hmm. that's a that's a really interesting one there but then there's uh, community capital that's you know probably the biggest one that uh, that people are uh, interested in around the place. And that's, you know, to do with social capital, where you sort of sit in the hierarchy and all that sort of stuff, cultural capital, how you identify where you belong. Um, and it's about
0: connectivity as well?
1: Yeah. Connectivity is definitely mm-hmm. a part of it. You know, like I'm, I'm, I'm an old goth. So for me, you know, the subculture of goth is kind of like, are they wearing a Sisters of Mercy t-shirt? Well, that's a cultural capital icon there. I can, ah, okay. I can sort of feel like I can belong in that place, mm-hmm. you know, and if they're, um, you know, I'm channeling the eighties here listeners. Um, but Uh, back in the day you know you'd have different uh, classes of golf as well you know you'd have the guys who were wearing like uh, the the really old Victorian you know cravats and all that sort of stuff and then you'd have the the more um Riot boys like me or Britpop guys who were just wearing, you know, all sorts of black nail polish and like ratty shirts and stuff like that. But then these guys were in cravats and stuff like that. So, there was a social hierarchy there too. Mm. So, social capital there. Um, And what binds all that together we call cohesion factor, which Uh, is is a boring term for things like trust or fear. You know, it's like... um, uh, and that's, I think that's fairly self-evident you know does it does your culture function because people are afraid to lose their jobs or does it function because people believe in what they're doing and how do nice you know distinction yeah, yeah that's great and you can't necessarily measure that because where is it that you can see evidence of it and how can you put a number to that and have it be and have it be meaningful mm. so that's a really interesting conversation around cohesion measures um am I getting into too much detail here no
0: it's, it's great I think you're on is that the fourth one
1: yeah yeah yeah, cool. So, there's four more to go. Okay. Um, there's natural capital, which Ooh. is a relative no-brainer. Let's talk about uh, minerals. Let's talk about air. Let's talk about the elements, that, you know, all that sort of stuff. And mm-hmm. where are they? How are we are using them? All that sort of stuff uh, is kind of bundled into natural capital mm-hmm. there. Not necessarily behaviors like recycling and stuff like that. They're more in an infrastructural capital relationship. But they have relationships with natural, obviously. Like water, for yeah. example. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um and then that leaves us with intellectual capital which is like IP stuff but also held knowledge um, and how that knowledge is um, how that knowledge is sort of managed in a sense as mm-hmm, well mm-hmm. how you you know what's unique about your knowledge is often how IP is articulated. Um,
0: I think knowledge management is quite um, in some realms well understood but I think it's it's also something that just doesn't register for a lot of people
1: yeah yeah and again because it's unmeasurable uh and it's a bit sort of intangible and all that sort of stuff as well in many ways it's a difficult and fuzzy sort of thing to, Mm. to to think about but by the same token it's very much a part of our education system how we raise our young how our young teach us things as well you know about the world and um and about ourselves and all that sort of thing um, so that's a fascinating one for mm, me. Um, yeah.
0: Think of all the sorts of conversations we could have around that, but let's, let's continue on. on. Yep. yep.
1: Creative capital is the second last one. So that's, you know, uh, originality uh, of thought and expression How and how, how you understand how originality of thought and expression, creative capital actually, um, inspires, you know, or challenges people to, to feel and think in certain ways. Um, and then the last one is human, which has to do with, you know, meaningfulness and it has to do with um, psychological state and spiritual state and all those sorts of things as well. Um, and, again, can be exchanged really, really beautifully. You know, if you're in a yoga class or in a meditation or something like that, you know, you might achieve a temporal state of kairos flow whilst at the same time feeling connected to something, you know, like whether it's your your ultimate self or whatever it is that, uh, that, that you connect with uh, in a way which helps make your life richer.
0: I love how it really... Picks up on the things that we don't normally value, mm. and identifies how valuable they actually really are. So, um, can you let's let's see if we can ground it in in reality a bit. So, are you you're working with an organisation now that is um, drawing on this? Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, these guys are currently called. And I've spoken to them about all this sort of stuff and they're happy to have this be an open case study so there'll be plenty of this stuff around. So they're currently called NAS uh, Insurance. Uh, They're part of the IAG Mm -hmm. um, supergroup there and uh, they've sort of merged into... Well, three businesses have sort of merged into one there, and uh, they're rebranding now as CBNL Community Broker Network. Um, and these guys, are led by Paul Ayton, who's, you who's know, been an IAG um, staunch for the last twenty odd years, uh, is the is the headman uh, there, and uh, we've been working closely with him for the last couple of years on uh, building the world's first snowflake organization, which is really uh, exciting. So, how do we how do we create a, a company which is you know actually in service of everybody, where everybody? has value grown uh, well grows value and has value grown for them, which is meaningful to them
0: so how how do, what's that going to look like? do you think like what are some examples of how that might look on the ground
1: yeah um so I think the simplest the simplest sort of concept that explains all of that is like uh, combining intimacy and scale. That's the biggest one that we've got at the moment. So how is it that we can, at one end of a value chain, for want of a better term, mm-hmm. um, how is it that we can uh, learn from and truly be in support of customers who are at the end uh, of the value chain? So to And this is all language that I, I'm not, happy with, but, you know, for the sake of... Uh, makes it translatable. Yeah, makes it translatable. Yeah. I mean, yeah.
0: well, a lot of what you're talking about is stuff we really don't have language for, so I can imagine it's a bit... Um, might feel a bit clunky in using the existing limited language that we've got.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we've got we've got customers out there who are running their own businesses who need, uh, you know, insurance um, support and all that sort of stuff. And that's, yeah, 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 so what? And they're provided for by you know, authorized brokers who will sell insurance policies that are appropriate to them and their needs typically under an oversight sort of thing. Oh, guess what? You know, for compliance, you need to have this kind of insurance to run your business. Oh, okay, thanks. I'll, I'll pay for that. Uh, that sort of thing. And then uh, beyond that, you've got uh, the community broker network, which is Sort of uh, looking at the relationships with those uh, with those end customers, so to speak, and understanding the context in which they live. So, uh, you know, my name is Matt, and I've got my own little business out in Bendigo, for for example, and um, and you know, I've got ambitions with my family of two children and my wife, um, and you know, we want to achieve this in our lives together. You know, we want to um, we want to buy a property out in the middle of uh, Victoria, and you know, like you know, have a sustainable life and all that sort of thing. Mm. Um, and how is it that you know the questions that we ask is how is it that cbn can work with you know the scale component of this intimacy at scale thing so the underwriters who create these policies at a massive level um to create meaningful solutions for you know matt the um the small business owner down at the other end so um that that's one way of going about explaining it. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that is that tangible enough or do i need to go deeper? yeah
0: well what i hear in what you're saying is that there's uh, an opportunity to look at what people's Goals are the context that they're in currently, and being able to provide services that that enable that, rather than it just being transactional. And here's the insurance that you need for your compliance.
1: Brilliant, yeah. Uh, the, you know, another shorthand that we use is communities in service of communities, and that's really that's really what um, the the whole be- point behind snowflake businesses is. Is what do you need? What forms of capital are most valuable to you? Is received, um, and how is it that we can create products, services, and experiences, etc. That uh, that let you you know connect to those needs in the context of where you're going in your life Mm. rather than just these transactional things um that you know might fulfill uh, a need like a band-aid you know covers a a cut but you know it doesn't actually create any value beyond just that immediate um patching up Mm. so yeah Yeah,
0: and i can see massive opportunities from really you know, switching from business as usual to something that, that does create an experience for the, you know, whether it's the customer or constituent or um, whoever is on the receiving end um, to have a much more meaningful experience and, and the opportunity for businesses to be able to, to, to value that and to see that it is actually likely to be th- um, something that is going to create a competitive advantage for people.
1: Yeah, that's right. And you touch on something really interesting there a competitive advantage because um, the conversations around us being a snowflake business shift the conversation from b- being purely about competitive advantage to collaborative advantage. Nice. So, how it. is it that we work together? To be able to create sort of meta values, you know, or meta value that exists just beyond that that transactional exchange. How is it that um, how is it that we work together to create value that is meaningful to each of us individually, together, you know, uh, on our journey through life mm-hmm. and uh, and our aspirations and all that sort of thing as well uh, as individuals and as a collective too. So you know, you know, some some listeners out there might be thinking about a peer to peer economy and and all that sort of stuff, which is very much a part of the uh, embedded uh, underpinning thinking behind. Uh, all of this sort of stuff um, and that's very challenging as I'm sure you can imagine to existing forms of government governance and all that sort of thing absolutely uh, so the opportunities to be able to explore this with uh, with courageous and uh, and visionary types of uh, people are, 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 are rare and extremely exciting when they come about mm. so
0: and I want to pick up on the the idea that you know ultimately what people who, who do take up this event this opportunity um, are going to be courageous well i think of it as th- this is thought leadership but it's also it's more than thinking it's it's actually creating uh, a whole new paradigm of business in in a way hmm. so i want to shift it into the leadership space a little bit and and um based on your experience with working in i'm thinking of it as as a, a kind of a leverage point for businesses to to move into that space of of leadership and into something that is uh you know yeah new paradigm of of Ways of doing business. What what's your experience of being able to uh, enable that?
1: Yeah, that's uh, that's that's a really hairy question, Tethra. <laughs> why, why is that? Um, it's it's really really nuanced, right? Um, mm-hmm. When when um, when you meet somebody in the world, uh, in your life, and you know and all that of thing, all sorts of stuff happens or doesn't happen, and how it is that you relate to each other uh, at a moment to moment level can be successful or unsuccessful to understand really what's going on with a person to, you know, that empathy, uh, that you can build for somebody might be totally colored in the first instance. And, um, and that happens in both ways. So when it comes to talking about leadership, it's a, it's a really tricky one because, uh, if I'm answering a question and please let me know if I'm not, um, uh, the, the real tricks come, come back to, come back to understanding you know i suppose the transparency and the vulnerability of that person to be able to share what they're what they really mean when they say i want to achieve something you know and how aligned they are to their own personal purpose and stuff like that does that does that make sense
0: yeah yeah absolutely okay. and from a vision perspective mm-hmm. if people were to take up these new approaches to creating value mm-hmm. what difference is that going to make
1: yeah great okay um well well, I can get technical again as well. So uh, one of the one of the things that one of the things that I do, and this is a you know total total transparency sort of thing. A, a lot of the time at the moment, I'm spending in this space of translating you know economic theory and emerging you know new economic theories and stuff like that into tangible reality. So I, I kind of flip flop between you know technical jargons and 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 business type conversations and everything in order to make sense of this stuff. Um, and I haven't really landed anywhere yet. But um, so it's it's going to be tricky to be able to, so I'm going to rely upon you to really yep. make sense of this stuff yep, at the moment. Good. So your question again, I'm sorry, was.
0: What difference is it going to make? What's the, what's the ultimate vision if, if people are taking, if, if there are courageous, more and more courageous companies taking up the opportunity to value their work differently, mm-hmm. what difference is that going to make in the world?
1: Well, yeah, th- that's awesome, and I think I think it's going to make every difference in the world. while we focus upon uh, these these easily measurable historical ways of conducting business. Where it's kind of you know like the old aphorism says, if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you 've always got so th- just taking that as an axiom it's enough to sort of say, well, what else can we do what what is different um, and if we understand that there's a correlation between value and money, uh, you know whether it's like making something meaningful for somebody uh, and having them buy a product again and again and again, such as in the case of Apple or endless other sort of examples, um, then we can create revenue uh, but that's what. That's one thing to be able to do. That, however, if you extrapolate that out further, and you say there's all this other value that's being exchanged in the world. There's all other more profound sorts of forms of um, of of reasons for being alive and for thriving. You know, and 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 we're not paying attention to that stuff. What can we do with that? Uh, becomes a whole game changing question, doesn't it? Really, because and again, I'm sort of trying to answer your question. But well, well
0: I, what I hear and what you're saying is it's like. You know, we've been looking at life through a very narrow uh, vision and uh, or it's, it's almost like we've got blinders on. We're looking at how value is created primarily financially mm. and that there is so much more and it's almost like you take the blinders off and you can see, you know, there's this peripheral vision that we can look at how we deliver, whether it's services or products or interactions through.
1: Yeah, yeah. So you're, you're you're expressing it absolutely brilliantly there. Um, the the question that I ask when I'm talking to to leaders about this sort of stuff is: there's a whole bunch of stuff that you're ignoring because you can't measure it.
0: And ultimately, I feel like they can't see it.
1: And they can't see it. That's mm. right. Yeah. Uh, whether you know, for whatever reason, that that may be the case. Now, if we can find that stuff, and if we can point to it, and we can say that we can design things which are going to be more meaningful based upon that, would you be interested in exploring it? Or would you rather keep doing what you're doing now and hoping that GDP and KPIs and NPS and everything like that are going to be better somehow into the future? It's a
0: bit of a no-brainer, isn't it?
1: It's It seems to be, uh, you know, um, but that's easy to say at my end of the stick because I can sort of sit here in theory land and I can collaborate with people and I can help people uh, that are interested in exploring these questions. But the rubber on the road really happens, you know, um, with with people who are doing this for themselves, you know, and when you've got a large organization or any kind of organization which is existing upon certain levels of credibility and measurement and management and all that sort of stuff, with shareholders that have expectations around return and everything like that, then all of a sudden we're starting to worry about risk a lot, you know, um, and how it is that you can handle risk and all that sort of thing. So it's a it's it's an extremely challenging space from a cultural perspective.
0: So tell me what you see from a leadership perspective around. The work that you're doing, and and ultimately, I guess what I'm interested in is has how you see and or define leadership changed as a result of your work here.
1: I've been at Huddle now for nearly four years, and one of the things that uh, the, I think the biggest thing about leadership for me that has changed is that it takes a lot of courage, you know, and it takes a you know, I'm going to quote Edith Sitwell here who's like, uh, you know, like a poet and an author from back out at, uh, in, in New York back you know, in the 1900s, early 1900s, uh, where she described uh, a certain person as having a hard, bright blindness about them. Um, which was illuminating. Uh, but I think you need to be really, really focused upon making a difference. Well what, what's your impact? What's your purpose? What legacy do you want to leave? And to almost be relentless in the pursuit of how you can realize that in ways which are you know, obviously it can be used for evil or for good or whatever it is. And, you know, I don't know if there's uh, any kind of uh, ethical stand that you can make around that that would be inarguable, but that's a totally different philosophical conversation. But um, when it comes to leadership, I think that's the thing. It's like there are people and, uh, and ways for, you, for people to dig deeper, to reach further, and to challenge the status quo because that's the only way that change happens. Um, That's the only way that change happens in this world. Um, And when you're layered in, um, in, in, in bureaucracy and all that sort of stuff, it can be really, really hard to... To, to have that vision and like a like a little flame, you know, in your hands or something like that. You know how uh, Man vs. Wild, uh, if you've ever watched Man vs. Wild, like he gets a spark with a knife and a piece of flint and he sort of like puts it into some of his own chest hairs that he's ripped off his chest, you know what I mean? <laughs> And he sort of like holds it in his hands like he's holding a little bird and he sort of blows on the spark and sort of builds it into a little bit of a flame from which you can light a fire. And the thing about leadership for me, I think, in in, in this real sort of like grounded visceral grit type, you know, terrified fearlessness you know the state of complete ambiguity but certainty at the same time that what you're doing and you what you believe in is incontrovertibly right it's it's still like that little chest hair flame you know it's like it needs to be nurtured and it can be blown out really quickly and how can you protect that and how can you grow it uh kind of like the most fundamental questions i think about leadership today and that's what hasn't changed no matter no matter and what shouldn't change i think is um that as we move into an environment of decision-making, which is far more complex in the world, that requires oversight, visibility, and confidence, that there are different forms of value out there which inform decisions intuitively rather than numerically, uh, that require uh, best guesswork, that require it's just right as an answer to a question rather than it makes money, you know. um, And if you can say it's just right and it makes money, well, great. Mm. That's awesome. But, you know, we need to have that it's just right, you know, uh, a lot more within our uh, remit to be able to give ourselves permission to say that uh, and to put ourselves on the line to do it. Because if we're not putting ourselves on the line, how are we expecting anybody else in the world to, Mm. you know, and that's where leadership is, is doing it first, leaning in.
0: Yeah, yeah I love what you say about this is the way the only way that change has ever happened is is you know by people being courageous by being vulnerable and to me yeah that's ultimately what leadership as well is and, and what I'm aiming to achieve with this podcast is ultimately to highlight the the vulnerability and the powerful vulnerability of leadership and the that you know to inspire people to to look different, look at the world differently, to value things differently. So when you encounter people who are, you know, have an idea, or um, they're about to write a book, or um, launch a podcast, or start a business, for example, um, but you know, you talk about there's those layers of bureaucracy that are sort of can be in the way, but but there's also our you know cultural norms and social um, barriers that. Discourage us from from you know making the leap or sticking your head up. Um, what advice do you have for people to to go for
1: Stick your head up. Do it anyway. Do what you believe in. You know, I'm a child of the '80s. I'm a Gen Xer. You know, we, we've we gave up for a little while. I think as a generation, and I'm going to speak for everybody. It's a part of this generation and say it. But I think we need to step up. And um, how we?
0: I'm not sure if we gave up or if we actually just.
1: I knew, I knew there'd be something going on there.
0: <laughs> so the way I look at it is that that we went into the shadows mm. and in that place we were able to see something different and it's not just all, you know, let's you know, just put our bold face forward. It's like a recognition and, and I think this is where kind of goth turned into emo in a sense that it's like looking at the things that we, you know, that, that society doesn't want to shine a light on mm. and we've got that experience and I think we're struggling to name what that is necessarily but... Um, but yeah, I think our generation brings something different mm. in that sense. Um, but yeah, anyways, continue.
1: No, you're, you're, you're right. You know, um, it's, it's absolutely the case. And I think that, you know, being old enough now, you know, being obsessed by these, um, John Rivers movies and stuff, you know, um, or like, you know, say anything. I think, I think that was the name of the guy didn't know who <gasps> directed that film. Oh, uh, I'm thinking of, um, anyways, go ahead. Whatever, yep. whatever his name was. Yep. And I'm sorry if that's not your name. Um, <laughs> And you're listening, of course, which you know, <laughs> there's a good chance of um, the, you know, the, the, these ideas about what life meant when we were younger and everything like that have sort of come Are you talking about John Hughes? Maybe that's him yeah, yeah so like, 16 candles 16 candles yeah breakfast all that club stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah yeah totally yeah, so. and it's like oh am i what's a life about yeah. you know it's like and i've i've got potency and agency right now to do things and to be myself and all that sort of stuff but there's always kind of like this this undercurrent this really tangible sort of undercurrent of what's right and what's wrong and you know what's good for people and what you know what's meaningful and all that sort of stuff which was a part of my upbringing anyway that I, I still carry with me now and i think that for myself i retreated from that for a long time you know i um I was like I don't really know who I am and I don't really know what I can do in the world and it's like I'm just this guy with these feelings and these thoughts and stuff like that and I really don't know what my avenue is to be able to begin to affect the world because I don't know what I want to affect it by because I see all this stuff around me which is affecting the world negatively Um, but I don't know how to change that and Mm -hmm. then you know I think I talk to a lot of uh, people, weirdly, these uh, at the moment who are just turning 40 or just, you know, in that category and I'm part of that category too now. And uh, these guys, you know, uh, all of the men at this point, um, you know, I'm meeting a lot of women at the same time, but just not having this weird connection where it's like, this is the time when we need to start doing things and we're clear enough to be able to start doing things, you know, as a a generation, if we could say that. Um, By the way, disclaimer, generational segmentation when you're doing our kind of research is not really the best segmentation you can use, but for the sake of, you know... uh, I
0: appreciate you saying that because I've I've got... um bit of a love-hate relationship with the whole generation thing. I think there's validity to it, but I also think there's an overemphasis on it.
1: Totally. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, for metaphorical yeah. purposes, it yeah. can be a lot of fun. Yeah. And
0: and I think it's also that, you know, we, we were brought up in the, you know, in the eighties when, you know, you, there were things you didn't talk about and we kind of rebelled against that. And, um, and, totally. and, and now I think, you know, we're older and wiser and there's these things going on in the world that they're just kind of like, okay, that, yeah, that's wrong. We need to do something about it. And we have, I think, a sense of a greater sense of agency now in our forties mm. to, to actually, you know, have an impact and to, to be compelled to, to, yeah you know, find meaning and to, to, to make a difference and to, you know, whether it's having business for purpose or, or whatever, or even just, you know, walking in the streets when there's a demonstration or whatever it is.
1: Totally. Yeah. And I think one of the, yeah, that's exactly right. And the biggest thing for me that came through in my experience of speaking for myself was, you know, when I was unsure, you know, and I still am, that's actually a feature of being a leader. You're never sure. There's no template for this stuff. I remember I was talking to my mentor, uh, Imair Huck, um, and he's an awesome guy and everything like that. You know, you read his medium posts on you know holding and loving and caring and everything like that, and you read his angry Twitter feeds and it's hilarious. This guy's a dichotomy, but um, but he was really really good with me when uh, when he sort of said, Matt, do you reckon you're the first person that's ever sort of experienced this uncertainty? nobody knows what the hell they're doing. They're using their intuition. They're having to make guesses and stuff like that. Some people will retreat to making decisions off profit and loss sheets. That's okay. Is that what you want to do? No. Okay. Well, get used to the idea that you don't know what tomorrow brings. And that's what real leadership is, is not knowing and being okay to proceed anyway, because you believe in what you're saying, you know, and if you're having to look at retrospective data and all that sort of stuff in order to make decisions, perhaps there's more that you can do. Um, but you know, that's just me bringing my own personal bias. And well,
0: energy. and that's exactly what I was asking for, and that's brilliant. I love it. And I was hoping that you would talk about your your uh, experience being mentored by Amir as well. Yeah, so
1: I mean, I have to because it's like it's just it's such a privilege. <laughs>
0: yeah. Is there anything else you want to say about that that experience that you've had over the last? Was is it been a year
1: now? Been you know, yeah, a bit over a year mm-hmm. with um, with Amir. Um, he he's an amazing coach um, and an amazing thinker. Uh, in many ways uh, and I think the biggest thing that I've carried away, um, f- I've carried away from my ongoing relationship with him is simply that y- you've got to love and you've got to love yourself and you've got to forgive yourself and you've got to be hard on yourself uh, all in ways which are striving towards what you believe in uh, and what you live for um, and nothing less than that and simply nothing more as well. Um, and it's so incredibly complex and so incredibly simple at the same time. Um, and so for me, it's like permission to just get up in the morning and say, forgive me, but fuck it. I believe in what I'm doing. I'm going to step up and do it. Some days you're not going to, sometimes you're going to stay in bed, but keep getting up and keep, keep being ambiguous but trying to find clarity anyway um and that's what he's that's what he continues to teach me and he exhibits in every way shape and form it's something you do as well by the way you know so you don't you don't need (laughs) you know you don't need to look any further than than the effect that you have in the world to to know that yourself so thank you i appreciate that super true
0: All right. Well, I think that's probably a good place to leave it. Thank you so much for um, your willingness to have a chat with us today and to set up this amazing studio with all these great uh, pieces of equipment that are going to be sounding a lot better than uh, what I normally have. So thanks again. I really appreciate it. (laughs)
1: It's been an absolute privilege. Thank you, Tethra.
0: So much wisdom there and lots to take in. I really appreciated the reframe of competitive advantage to collaborative advantage. I'm a real believer in cooperation and collaboration, yet I find myself using the language of competition. Nothing wrong, nothing right, just is. But it stood out for me and reflected back to me the importance of language in framing our thinking. Hey, did you notice the difference in sound quality? If you, if you did, let me know. I'm curious if you could hear it. Um, you can email me at poppy at tathrastreet.com, and of course we welcome feedback of all kinds. Another thing that stood out for me was Matt's tall poppy advice, how it gives us permission to be simultaneously ambiguous and clear. And it's so true that no one knows what they're doing. Look, I have moments of clarity about things like the effectiveness of my coaching when a client says they responded differently to a situation that would normally have gone badly, or when a group or team that I'm working with comes to a decision that they're all happy with. But of course, the doubt returns. And now I feel like I can give myself permission to have both doubt and confidence, that they aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. And that as humans, we contradict ourselves all the time. And though it can be annoying, it's okay too. I'm going to take a leaf out of Mark Crowley's book, or well his article on how happy career can still feel unfulfilling, and I'm going to ask what we're taking to heart from my interview with Matt. Thinking about different forms of value or types of capital You know, that we can recognize financial capital, human capital, natural capital, even temporal or time, like temporal capital. And I I get that for some, using the word capital may have different associations. And if it irks you, just see if you can put it aside for the moment and just kind of go with it. Coming back to the snowflake model, those other less obvious forms of capital, creative, intellectual, infrastructure, and community... When I think of it in these terms, it becomes obvious that things like community, well, it's hugely valuable, and it rarely gets factored into the equation. This is what excites me about what Matt's described. What would happen if we did factor it in more, and if it became more of the rule rather than the exception? What if we started to value our time differently, and savored those moments of kairos, knowing that they're impermanent? They just don't last. Would we have different priorities? Would we make different choices about how we spend our time, how we spend our temporal capital? And what about creativity? Would we value environments that encourage creativity and perhaps be more curious about the nature of creativity and how it currently gets squashed soon after we start going to school? Don't get me started on that one. What else are we taking to heart? Another piece of Matt's tall poppy advice was about being compelled to find meaning and have impact. I don't necessarily think that it's age or generation specific, but I agree that it kind of comes into focus in your 40s. What about you? Where do you find meaning? What's meaningful for you? And what kind of impact are you having? And how do you feel about it? Be honest with yourself, but also be careful to avoid the not enough trap. We never believe that we're doing enough or making a big enough impact. As Lynn Twist says, it doesn't matter the role you play, if it's large or small, it's yours to play. And I'm going to challenge you to look for the difference that you make, the difference that you make to those around you. Sometimes it can be hard to see, but if you look at it, and better yet, if you have someone you trust that you can ask about the difference you make, you might be surprised. I could go on, but let's start to wrap it up. Again, I'm curious about the sound quality of the interview, um, given we were in the huddle studios with the beautiful equipment. And, you know, yeah, could you tell the difference? Um, If you could, I want to know. So please email me, poppy at tathrastreet.com. And if you did, it means that you've listened to at least one other episode, which I want to thank you for. Because, yeah, Tell Poppy isn't for everyone. It's for change makers, for people who challenge the status quo, for people who want to explore different aspects of leadership, from both a personal and professional angle. And I invite you to connect with me on social media. With a name like Tathra Street, I'm relatively easy to find on places like LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook. And if you do, please send me a direct message to let me know that you've sent a connection request so I can make the link. I don't always accept requests, especially if I don't have any apparent relationship. So my name is spelled T-A-T-H-R-A-S-T-R-E-E-T. And as we draw this to a close, I'd like to thank you again for listening to Tall Poppy, and we'll see you next week.